it's good to see you. Um, forgot today that open roads is going on in the city. So uh, a little bit late, just came out on that last song. So, you know, driving around the town because all the roads are closed. Um, that that last, last song, and for those of you who don't aren't familiar with that, don't know the story, uh, if you look at the... Um, the, the the little um, acknowledgement at the end. It's uh, it's by uh, Saul, Saul, uh, Finnis with twenty schemes, uh, and a song about uh, about proverbs, and that's what we're gonna uh, look at today. Proverbs chapter uh, twenty one, verses two to eight. Um, so that was. Uh, 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 really appreciate that song and and how it it it, it reminds us that the proverbs is not merely about our walk with god it, it is it is about jesus and it points us to him and he's the one who walks with us but he's the, also the one who has first walked the road before us and uh, uh perfectly obeyed the 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 uh, Proverbs and uh, lived out its truths and uh, uh, received the reward of, of that. And uh, he calls us to, to follow him by making us, creating in us a new heart that desires and loves him. So we're going to look at Proverbs 21, verses 2 to 8 this, uh, this morning. And uh, uh, before we look at that, we're going to so Proverbs 21, verses 2 to 8, before we look at that, we are going to, um, I'm going to pray the words of Jeremiah 15, verse 16 for us, all right? I'm going to pray that, uh, that verse uh, as we begin this uh, particular message. Lord, we ask that your words would come and that we would eat them, that we would take them into into our very soul. And I ask that they would become our joy and our heart's delight because we bear your name, Lord God Almighty, because we are yours. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. I don't usually read uh, books about politics, but... Uh, Robert McKenzie's book about American democracy um, kept my attention from cover to cover. I uh, just finished the book last night. And one fascinating part of this book is his description of Andrew Jackson, the seventh president of the United States uh, from 1829 to 1837. And this is what he says about, this is part of what he says about Jackson. He says, if there is a common thread unifying both the strengths and weaknesses of this president of the United States, it was Jackson's supreme, unshakable belief in his own righteousness. Mackenzie says that after reading, reading thousands of documents that Jackson wrote or dictated, I have yet to unearth a single sentence in which he acknowledged a character flaw or confessed a moral offense, he was seemingly incapable of admitting wrong. The flip side of this moral self-assurance was Jackson's equal certainty that anyone who crossed him was a scoundrel. 
His opponents were villains. They were vile, wicked, sordid, and despicable. Not honorable adversaries, but enemies. His enemies and enemies of the American people. And as I read that description, my mind was kind of immediately drawn to a more recent president of the United States who had seemingly similar self-righteous tendencies. And then, as God has the tendency to do, as I was studying through Proverbs chapter 21, verses 2 to 8, I was reminded of how that same tendency, that same weakness, that same flaw of character shows up in my life. I am prone to think that I am wrong and other people are, I'm right and other people are wrong. I wish it was the other way around, but (laughs) I am prone to think that I am right and other people are wrong. I am prone to be overly critical of other people's failings, and yet very quick to justify when those same failings show up in my life. Proverbs 21, verses 2 to 8 says this. A person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. By the way, if you're using the Bibles here, it's page 932 using these Bibles. Bibles. A person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. To do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the unplowed field of the wicked, produce sin. The plans of the diligent lead to profit, as surely as haste leads to poverty. A fortune made by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a deadly snare. The violence of the wicked will drag them away, for they refuse to do what is right. The way of the guilty is devious, but the conduct of the innocent is upright. That first proverb, verse 2, a person may think their own ways are right. That really hits home at our self-righteousness. And I think even more so in, in this in this age that um, of, of today where um, there is this expressive individualism that's, that so kind of dominates the thinking of, of our culture. And so in our culture, you know, be true to yourself. Uh, live your own truth. Only I can determine right and wrong for me. You've heard that, right? You've heard people say those things. That is the, that is the, the mentality of our, our culture. It's the mantra that our society repeats to itself. And at the same time, while we like to say that other people have that same right to determine their own morality, the truth is, We are outraged by those who hold different values than than we do. And and so we often act as judge and jury of what is right and good. And and that's not something new. Humanity has has, um, been self-righteous, self-justifying, self-rationalizing since the time of Adam. And Proverbs 21 verse 2 speaks to this tendency of the human heart and it gives a necessary corrective It says, a person may think their ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. That word for right refers to being upright. It's repeated at the end of verse verse 8. It's connected to integrity. Um, When Solomon says, you know, a person may think their own ways are right, don't don't be fooled by that. It is pure rhetoric. 
He's not saying maybe people think their ways are right. He is saying that there, without a doubt, that we human think that we are our own reliable guide for what is good. He is he is absolutely confident that we believe with all of our heart that we ourselves can direct us on the path that is morally upright. The second part of the verse, however, tells us we're not a reliable standard. We are not our own uh, uh, reliable standard of right and wrong. Instead of relying on our, our own personal moral intuition, our sense of morality needs to really come from outside of ourselves. And the reason is because there is a God who weighs the heart. He alone can accurately measure uh, our motives and intentions. Intentions. And so the question is not, am I true to myself, but am I true to God? Right? As, as one uh, pastor writes, right and good and true are not subjective individual constructs. Rather, they flow from the one who is himself righteousness goodness, and truth. And so in this message, what I want to do is, I really want is the scriptures to expose some of the ways in which we fool ourselves about our own uprightness, which we delude ourselves about our own, about our own morality. And so we're going to look at four causes of our self-delusion, where we think we are on the upright path, but God says, no, hold on a minute, this is the case. This is the, re- this is the reality. And we need, to, we need to kind of check in with what he says rather than merely go by our own moral intuition. And so we are de- de- self-deluded in four ways. Number one, by our religiousness. Number two, by our haughtiness, our pride. Number three, by our greediness. And number four, by our violence our love of power and using it in violent ways to get what we want. So let's look at these four things. Number one, we are self-deluded by our religiousness. In the Bible, animal and uh, grain sacrifices were commanded by God for the people of Israel. It's it's part of Israel's worship system. And yet for, for God... Mere outward conformity to that command was never, was never the, the intention. Proverbs 21 verse 3 tells us what pleases God more. He says, to do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. This is not a, this is not a criticism of the Old Testament sacrifice system, right? That was commanded by God. It was part of Israel's worship system. It was meant to foster covenantal faithfulness, to, to foster this faithfulness to the commands of God, to the, to, the, to the covenant that God had made between him and Israel, his people. He had made this promise to them. He said, I will keep this promise. And, but part of that is, is these are, this worship that you're to offer is through, is through um, this, this sacrificial system Worship, religion, if you will, was always meant to be this expression of genuine devotion to God. God has done this for us. We are his. 
And in response, we worship God. Supposed to be this response of the heart to God's holiness and love, not an outward show of religiousness. And that fits with verse 2, right, where, where it says God weighs the heart. It was never just meant to be about this, this performing of, of acts. But notice that verse 3 doesn't talk about the heart. It talks about doing what is right and just. It says that our actions please God. Not a contradiction. Right? It's not a contradiction here. Um, our actions flow from our hearts. Our, our actions reveal the condition of our hearts. Our our heart and our actions are, are a unified whole. That, that's, that's integrity. And specifically, what pleases God is a heart and a resulting life that does what is right and just. Not about trading one performance for another performance. Right. Um, we need a new heart that desires what is right and just. And only God can do that work. Only God can give us that new heart um, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ who died and rose again to make us right with God. It's from that new heart that we will obey. It's not to earn God's, it's not to perform to earn God's favor. It's not like we're on this constant treadmill. I gotta, I gotta keep doing so that God will, will love me. No, God loves us in Christ. And from that we respond in obedience. We respond in doing his work because of his, because he has done a work in us. And when we forget that God wants our entire life, not just our Sunday worship, we end up practicing rituals of religion with our hearts far away from righteousness and justice. And we become we become more religious than righteous, but, but true worship is always, always encompassed the way we treat one another, especially the way we treat the vulnerable and we treat the needy. All right, so, Isaiah, so the prophet Isaiah, um, speaking on God's behalf, says to the people of Israel, stop bringing meaningless sac sacrifices and offerings. Your incense detestable to me, an abomination. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. When you offer many prayers, I'm not listening, God says. Why? Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. What does the Lord our God require of us? That we do right. That we do justice. We fool ourselves and we think that we are upright because we were baptized uh, or we're faithful at 
attending church, or we give generously, or we take part in communion, or we serve in the congregation, and 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 for those reasons alone that we're we're following the upright path. Listen, all these are good, all these are important, all these are are are, are part of 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 our worship of of God. But God is pleased when we are righteous and religious, not when we are religious without righteousness, right? The sacrifice he wants from us is a life that does what is right and just. He wants us. He wants our heart transformed by him to love righteousness and justice. We are, we are, we are self-deluded by our religiousness. God calls us to be righteous. Secondly, we are self-deluded by our haughtiness. Proverbs 21, verse 4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the unplowed field of the wicked, produce sin. The inward proud heart looks at the world with an outward air of superiority. And that word for pride means unrestrained. Unrestrained. It, it's a heart that knows no boundaries and thinks it can act as if it were God. It, and, and as a result, it looks down on the rest of the world from this high, lofty perch, right? If, if, if I'm God, then I get to look at, down at all you little mortals. And, and so that proud heart, that unrestrained heart, looks down on everything else. And that, and that pride and haughtiness is said to be an unplowed field. Some translations, and you may have a translation that says it's a lamp. Uh, the, to say that pride is a, the, the word can be translated both ways. And, and to say that, that pride is a lamp uh, means that it guides our steps. It guides the sinful steps of the wicked. While to say that uh, um, pride is an unplowed field uh, means that it is the ground from which our sin grows. It's, it's the ground from which sin grows. That the wicked allow pride to grow unchecked. You know, like weeds in your in your in your garden. You don't you don't take care of them. They just they just they just flourish. And and so the wicked just we're not dealing with the pride in our lives. We just let it go unchecked, and it and it just flourishes, and sin grows and grows. And so whether it's a lamp or an unplowed field, the sense is that pride results in sin. And specifically in this context, it means that pride causes us to think that whatever we do is right, regardless of God's will. Regardless of what God says, if I am my own God, then whatever I think is right is right. And that's this pride that unrestrained, audacious in its outlook on life. What pride does is, is it, it leads us to exalt our, ourselves in place of God. And when we have this too high view of ourselves, we're going to think, of course, that our way is the upright way. As David Platt says, this is the essence of sin, that we set ourselves up as if we are God, as if we know what is best for our lives. 
And the God who weighs our hearts knows when we have a proud heart. So rather than, God knows, right? So rather than pretend with him, rather than, you know, I I can fake it with you that I'm humble. But I can't fake it with God. He knows. He weighs the heart. And so rather than leave pride to grow unchecked in us, we need to go to the Lord. It's just the most sensible thing to do. He knows everything about us. We need to go to the Lord in confession and repentance. We need to weed pride out and cultivate a humble heart. We have to stop overreaching into the domain of God. The condition of our heart needs to change from self-exaltation to exalting God. And the focus of our eyes needs to change from self-admiration to admiring the Lord. And as we repent of that folly of pride, this unplowed field of our heart becomes cultivated with the wisdom of Jesus. And then we begin to see more and more clearly the perfect way of God, that this perfection of walking in his way. Let's not be self-deluded by our haughtiness. Pride is at the very essence of sin. We are all sinners. We're all proud. God knows that. God weighs our heart. Let's come to him with repentance, confession of our pride. Thirdly, we are self-deluded by our greediness. Proverbs 21 verse 5 says this, The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. And a lot of the time, this verse is used to underscore the importance of making plans. Not to be, not, you know, don't be too impulsive. Don't be too hasty when making decisions. Um, you know, don't make rash, distracted decisions because you lack foresight, because you lack planning. Be diligent, make plans. And that includes the idea of being creative, being calculating, you know, as you, as you conceive the course of, of, uh, of your actions, of your life. And that's how that verse is usually applied, and, and that's a good application. That's a, that's a good thing to draw from this verse in terms of, you know, the importance of making plans and, and not to be impulsive and, and, and hasty. But there's more here than just the importance of making plans. There, there is in this verse what Jesus called the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches. Um, you'll notice from the first part of the verse that Solomon is not attacking wealth. He says that diligent planning leads to profit, which is a word that means excess or plenty. God is not opposed to riches. 
But he is clear on his deceitfulness, which is brought out by the word haste, which in this context means haste for what? Haste for excess. Haste for profit. Haste for that excess. Haste for the abundance. Haste for more. And so we ask the question, why is this haste wrong? So let's go back to the diligent. The diligent are not just hardworking. It's more than that. In Proverbs, the diligent are identified with the wise, which means that they are attentive, they are persistent in fulfilling their responsibilities for Godward reasons. Their heart is Godward. And so they are diligent because, not just just. just just a lot of people who are hardworking. It's not just that. It's that there is this hardworkingness that comes out of a Godwardness in their life. They are Christ-oriented in their work. And that's their main motive for making plans. It's not plans to get rich, but plans to accomplish their God-given responsibilities and obligations in the home, in the workplace, in the, in the church, in the community, wherever they, God has placed them, whatever responsibilities God has given to them, they want to be diligent, they want to make the plans that they can fulfill those obligations to honor God, to glorify Him. That's the direction of their heart. And the result of that kind of Godward diligence, according to this verse, is that they have more than enough. But that isn't their focus. Their focus is to honor God in their labors. The hasty, on the other hand, where's their focus? Their focus is on the excess. Their focus is on the profit, on the, on the abundance. And to put it simply, the hasty are greedy. They are obsessed with the excess. That's where the delusion comes in. Comes in. in our haste for wealth, we do what is right in our own eyes. We rush to get rich without regard for God's will or God's word. We convince ourselves that our ways are moral and upright. And if things go well, we may even think that God is blessing us. But instead of, but, but, but instead of our greedy impulses leading to excess, this verse says, we end up in poverty. What that, what, what that word is saying is, we end up without enough without enough. And verse 6 gives us an example of how, of how this self-delusion plays out in our, in our lives. One of the sure indications of our haste for wealth is our willingness to lie to get what we want. Listen to this warning. A fortune made by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a deadly snare. I think normally most of us would say that lying is wrong. You'd say that, right? You'd say that lying is wrong, wouldn't you? Most of us would, would say, yeah, lying is, is wrong. You'd say that, right? Right? 
But if I'm my own moral standard, then it's easy to rationalize my actions. The end justifies the means. So it shouldn't surprise us that we may think our own way is moral and upright, that I am doing what is good, yet at the same time, I would resort to lying, to deception, even fraud, to get rich or to get richer. Bernie Madoff is probably the most famous fraudster of this past generation. Most of you know Bernie Madoff. Are you familiar with that name? Bernie Madoff um, created this scheme where he invest, where basically it was um, he defrauded um, thousands of investors of their money. He conned people out of $65 billion. But as Morgan Housel shares, what most people don't know is that before he did that, before he conned people out of $65 billion, he had a legitimate business that was making $25 to $50 million a year in profit. Madoff didn't, this is what Morgan Housel says, he says, Madoff didn't commit his crime because he had nothing. He had more wealth, more freedom, more power than most people can even dream of. Yet he threw it all away and committed his crime because he had no concept of enough. He had no concept of enough. He was greedy for excess. And later, when he was asked about for his accountability for his actions, this is what he said. I sort of, you know, I sort of rationalized that what I was doing was okay, that it wasn't going to hurt anybody. He rationalized it. Isn't that what we all do? We rationalize, right? We justify our actions. But look again at verse 6. We may rationalize our actions, but what we're really chasing when we, what, what are we really chasing after when we chase after excess, when we chase after not enough? What are we really chasing after? We are pursuing vapor and ultimately death. The word for vapor can also refer to our breath. So I want you to do this thought, thought experiment with me, all right? Take a deep breath. Think of how precious, valuable that breath is. It is your life. If you stop breathing, you die, all right? Take that deep breath in. Think of how valuable, how precious that breath is. Now slowly breathe out that breath, and as you do so, grab it. Grab it. Hold it tight. Put it in your pocket. Take it home with you and put it in your safe or in the safety deposit box at your bank. 
or, or put it in a box and bury it in your backyard. Because this is precious. It is your breath. It is your life. Put it safe. And you say it's absurd. That's absurd, right? But that is what we are grasping when we are driven by greed. We are grasping for what is transitory, what is fleeting. It's God. It's not there. We are grasping for what is transitory, what is fleeting, but more than that, we are grasping, we are chasing after death. The Apostle Paul, in saying to Timothy, called it death and destruction. Not, sorry, not ruin and destruction. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. So let's not delude ourselves. Let's not delude ourselves with the love of money. Let's instead desire what is permanent and secure. Desire what is permanent and secure. What is that? Paul, again, saying to Timothy, you want, what is, you want what is secure? You want what is permanent? Hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Do good, be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. Lay up treasure for yourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that we may take hold of the life that is truly life. You want what is permanent and secure? Grab hold of God, of Jesus. Put your hope in him. Grab hold of the life that is truly life in Christ. And if in the process of living for God, he gives you excess, then, then enjoy it and be generous with it. Be thankful and grateful for what God has given to you. Don't hold tightly to it. Spread it around. Share it widely, generously. But don't delude yourself. Let's not delude ourselves with greed. Let's keep our hearts pure from the love of money by diligently pursuing the life that is truly life, life in Christ. Finally, we are self-deluded by our viciousness. You're probably familiar with the saying, might is right. It's the view that uh, those with power have the right to determine what is right and wrong. It could be physical power. It could be political power. It could be emotional or relational power over somebody. We, we, are, um, we gravitate towards power because power allows us to get what we want and to do so even violently and viciously if we need to. I mentioned earlier about this book about American hypocrisy. This is, this is the deceptiveness of power. We want to Christianize politics, but what has happened is that we have politicized Christianity.
The tragedy is this, that regardless of the form of power, whether it is personal, physical, political, emotional, relational, regardless of the type of power, it is too often used viciously and, and violently to oppress people and to wreak havoc. Proverbs 31, verse 7, the violence of the wicked will drag them away, for they refuse to do what is right. And that word right is the word justice. By trampling on justice, the wicked think they can get their own way. This is self Delusion. If we think back to verse 3, we remember that God requires justice. And so we may think that our strength and our power allows us to be vicious and violent to get what we want, but God will call us to account. God will, God will judge us. The assault of the wicked on, on others will return on their own head. God will judge the violent. And we see that in verse 8, that the verdict of that judgment is guilty. Guilty. The way of the guilty is devious, but the conduct of the innocent is upright. And we could probably apply um, the way of the guilty to include not only the, the violent in verse three, uh, verse 7, but also um, the religious, the haughty, the, the greedy in the previous verses. All of these are devious or crooked. When we walk these paths, we may think that we are on the straight road because we are our own moral standard, right? So if I'm my own moral standard, then whatever road I'm walking on, even if it's, even if it's the way of religiosity or it's the way of haughtiness or the way of greed or the way of, of, of violence, if I'm walking in that road, if I'm my own standard, then that must be the upright road. And so we convince ourselves, we rationalize it, we excuse our own violence. We, we condone our own religiosity. We justify our own pride. We, we rationalize our own greed. But we are guilty. Who then does God call innocent or pure? Who's the innocent one? Those who live by the upside-down values of God's kingdom. Not merely religious, but righteous. Not haughty, but humble. Not greedy, but generous. Not violent, but gentle. That's hard for us. It's impossible for us. In and of ourselves, we do not naturally pursue the values of God's kingdom. The beginning of this message, I... we talked about the fact that throughout this message, we've been talking about the fact that we think that our, our own way is moral and upright. Tim Keller, who's, um, who spent much of his pastoral ministry uh, in one of the most secular cities in the world, in New York City, and in, in his own words, he says he was neck deep in sophisticated 20-somethings. He says that rather than this this generation being relativistic and amoral, he says the secular young adults I have known have a very finely honed sense of right and wrong. 
The problem is that there is no basis for that moral sensibility. Who's to say what is right or wrong? Who's to say that right is wrong or wrong is right? Who's to say that religiosity or pride or greed or violence are immoral? Left to ourselves, we would elevate ourselves as the standard and we would pursue our own morality. And God could have done that. He could have left us to ourselves. I want the knowledge of good and evil. Fine. I'll leave you to it. But he didn't. Jesus Christ came into our world to show us the beauty and the perfection of God's way. He came to us and turned the world upside down. He came to us not with religiousness, but with righteousness. He came to us not in haughtiness, but with humility, not with greediness, but with generosity, not with viciousness, but with with gentleness. Um, So much gentleness, right? To, to sinners who shake our fists at God and say, I want to be God. I want to, I want to have the knowledge of right and, and wrong, of good and evil. I want to be the determiner of those things, not you. And, and, to, and to those who, to, to sh- who shook their fists at him, God came to us with incredible gentleness, amazing gentleness. So much gentleness that he died on the cross in the greatest display of righteousness and humility and generosity and, and gentleness of the entire world. And then he rose again from the grave to, to secure the victory of God's promise that, put, that those who put their trust in Jesus will be weighed and found pure. Amazing, right? When you've put your faith in Christ, you will be weighed. I know my heart. How can this be? That my heart will be weighed and found pure found innocent in Christ, alone in him. The path of righteousness, haughtiness, greed, and viciousness, sorry, the the path of religiousness, the path of haughtiness and greediness and viciousness, that is an empty path. Don't be deluded by them. Come to Jesus. If you have never, if you have never placed your trust in him, do so now. Come and find life in Jesus. If you have put your faith in Jesus, if he is your Lord and your Savior, lean into him. Lean into him. Not into yourself. Lean into him and follow him 
wholeheartedly. And if you have taken your eyes off the path of God and you've wandered, repent, return, come back to the life that is truly life in Jesus. Religiousness, haughtiness, greed, violence, just empty. Don't be fooled by them. All right, let's pray. We think, Lord, that our own way is right because from the very beginning, we, we took from that which you said do not take because we were deceived to believe that by taking what is not ours, we would know good and evil. We would be the arbiters, the judges of good and evil. And we, are, we were deceived and, 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 and we are, we are by nature continuing to deceive ourselves that we know right and wrong, good and evil, in and of ourselves. Lord, remind us afresh that right and wrong is outside of us. It is squarely set in you. And help us to see the beauty of this. Help us to see the amazing wonder of this, the perfection of this. Draw our hearts to desire it. For those who don't know you, draw them to see the beauty of Jesus, the one who lived perfectly this life of righteousness and humility and gentleness and generosity. For those of us who know Jesus as our Savior and our Lord, keep our eyes focused in the right place. Help us to live the life that is truly life. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.